This is Telehealth Unmuted, a podcast developed by Heartland Telehealth Resource Center. HTRC is one of 14 federally designated telehealth resource centers in the country, serving the states of Kansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma. We know there's a huge need for up-to-date telehealth-related information, from billing and reimbursement to psychology and online therapy. So we're bringing subject matter experts and their insights right to you. I'm your host, Kara Lawler, Director of Health Communication Research Center, and this is Telehealth Unmuted. I am so excited for today's episode with Rochelle Marding. Rochelle is an attorney, registered health information administrator, and certified medical coder who leads a multidisciplinary team in her legal practice. Rochelle serves as outside general counsel for hospitals, provider practices, and long-term care communities. She also serves as interim director of managed care for an acute care facility and medical group, and teaches health law and policy at the University of Kansas School of Medicine. Rochelle works with the Heartland Telehealth Resource Center as an education outreach partner to offer telehealth-specific assistance for the Kansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma region. Welcome to the show, Rochelle. We're so excited to have you today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. We are so excited to have you, and we've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's jump right in. I always like to ask the same question at the beginning of every episode, and it is um, to ask you to tell us about your career background. You know, starting from maybe undergrad, how did you how did you get here? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I've always had an interest in healthcare, and so that seemed like a really natural area to end up in, uh, but I wasn't sure clinical care was quite going to be for me, and I found the health information management program at KU, and it just seemed to be a perfect fit of learning, still learning anatomy and physiology and pharmacology, but also combining more um, business and computer and technology interests all into one program. So I went to the University of Kansas Health Information Management Program for undergrad and um, joined their bridge program. They actually had a combined bachelor's and master's program where I could then go into healthcare administration and kind of take take those concepts to the next level and and learn more about how they uh, affect health systems at a larger scale. And in both of those programs, there were health law classes. And I really became fascinated with health law as a result of those, both of those programs really had fantastic instructors in both and ended up going to uh, law school, graduating from law school. And uh, after a combination of working different in-house and external uh, roles, worked at a law firm, a small healthcare law firm for about 10 years before um, finding myself where I am today. Wow. Um, Immediately, I'm intrigued by kind of that intersection between healthcare and law. You know, you mentioned wanting to have um, exposure to both. Um, Were those always interests of yours or did they kind of happened simultaneously while you were in school? 
the healthcare was law. I never really um, knew beyond medical malpractice. I didn't know that there was this whole other world of healthcare law uh, for, that was a possibility for a career. So I was so glad to get that education in the undergrad and the graduate programs and that exposure um, that healthcare law can be so much more than litigation, which is what I've really enjoyed. I've enjoyed the business of healthcare law. I've enjoyed the regulatory compliance. I've enjoyed the legal aspects of coding and billing and payment. And so once I realized that I could combine those interests together, um, that intersection has just been a really good fit. Yeah, it, clearly it has been a really good fit because you are doing so much uh, in, in, that, in that realm. I wanted to take a moment to kind of set a foundation uh, for some of the things that we will be talking about today. So one of your main focus areas is telehealth billing and reimbursement. How would you describe this work and its importance? I mean, why does it matter? Sure. Well, I, I, the coding and billing and the reimbursement came first. Um, that's what I've done since the beginning of my career after finishing my programs. I worked in-house um, as a compliance auditor, looking at professional charges, looking at documentation. And at that time, telehealth wasn't uh, a big practice area, but converting to electronic medical records was. And so it was the perfect time to get in and start to take that technology piece of health information management and see how that translates into regulatory compliance issues and coding and billing issues in this new world of electronic medical records. The telehealth piece came later, particularly in the height of the COVID public health emergency. When we saw um, from March to May of 2020, um, just huge changes in the way telehealth was delivered, the settings where it was provided, flexibilities for healthcare providers to deliver and make telehealth services more accessible, the next logical question was, can we, and if so, how do we get paid for those services that we're providing as part of the public health emergency? So that really is what catapulted me into the telehealth-specific coding, billing, and payment world. And I'm sure as we'll talk about more, um, it's just been an ever-changing evolution over, over the last three years um, as part of the public health emergency. Thank you. That's very well put. And I appreciate you kind of helping us contextualize all of these different elements and like when they happened in in the timeline, uh, for lack of better words. So moving right along, what is the public health emergency and who does it impact? Sure. Well, the public health emergency, when I say PHE or public health emergency, I'm referring to the Federal Department of Health and Human Services. COVID-19 public health emergency. Um, it, it was declared in 2020, and the timing for our discussion today couldn't be any better because May 11th, at the time we're recording this, that's tomorrow, is the last day of this more than three-year federal public health emergency. So the 12th, I think that's Friday, is our first day truly in the post-COVID PHE era and that has a huge impact on coding and billing and payment, particularly in the telehealth context. I find it really interesting, like you said, that we're recording today and it's ending tomorrow. Like the timing couldn't be more perfect. And 
I immediately want to ask about the post-COVID uh, landscape, but I know that we will be talking about that later, so I will restrain myself. Um, how would you describe the impact of the PHE on billing and reimbursement policies? Um, I know that the PHE has made telehealth more accessible and less burdensome on the provider compliance piece, um, but I, I would just love to hear more about that from you. Sure, and, and maybe I need to step back and, and answer fully answer your previous question on who the PHE impacts. And for the, the federal COVID-19 public health emergency, at least where we stand today, it impacts any provider that participates in the federal Medicare payment program. Uh, it created a lot of flexibilities under the Medicare program for how telehealth is delivered. And whenever Medicare makes changes to its policies, what we often find is that the major commercial payers, the Aetna's, the Blue Cross, the Cigna, Humana, United's of, of the country, um, their policies tend to sort of align and follow suit. So even providers who didn't maybe participate in Medicare have found that the COVID-19 public health emergency has impacted them and their coding and billing for telehealth in one way or another. Now that we are just on the verge, I, I would say knock on wood because we've still got a whole 24 hours or more to go before it ends and crazier things have happened. But assuming we do uh, have the public health emergency for COVID expire at the end of the day, on May 11th. Then on May 12th, um, the impact that that has on telehealth and coding and billing policies is sort of an unwinding of a myriad of different flexibilities and waivers that had come into effect at different points in time throughout the public health emergency. And just like we saw these come into effect at different times, we are going to see the unwinding of those policies also take effect at several different points in time. So the impact has been tremendous in the sense that while 45, 60 days notice of the, the PAG expiring um, seemed to give a fair amount of notice, it's still not a lot when you take into consideration all of the operational steps that have to happen to reverse program policies and operations for healthcare providers. That's um, a very good point. And I'm just, I have so many follow-up questions. I, it's very interesting. And I think probably the, the golden question, the question that our listeners are probably wondering as they're listening to this in the future is going to be, what does this mean for the future of telehealth? Like, what, what does it look like in the post-PHE landscape, I guess, for lack of better words. And so um, I I know that there's probably a million answers to that question, and it's very nuanced. And I'm planning to revisit it later in the interview, so I want everyone to stay tuned for that because we will get into it. Um, how have you seen billing and reimbursement change in telehealth over the course of your career? So kind of, you know, at large, outside of PHE, what has that evolution looked like? Well, it's more accessible 
certainly being used much more frequently. And you can see there's a lot of data about the volume, particularly during the public health emergency that really catapulted the use of telehealth um, in a variety of settings and a variety of geographic locations and in service types that never used telehealth before, um, or certainly didn't use it to the extent that they have begun using it since the mid-2020 um, era, so to speak. And what I have seen change the most are the requirements and the standards have become more flexible in the sense that telehealth very early on had a very rigid payment structure, particularly with the Medicare program. Um, it was very limited to audio visual communications technology. Um, it was very limited to the geographic location where a patient was situated because it, it seems those rigid structures were initially intended to make healthcare services available in rural areas. And I think as telehealth has evolved and policy has evolved, and we've gotten so much more data because of that volume over the last several years and the safety and the effectiveness and the accessibility of healthcare services by relaxing some of those flexibilities, um, that's where I see the, the change and the evolution of telehealth. It's we're realizing it can be done successfully in far more settings than it had originally been designed for payment purposes. You said that there, you know, it's opened up opportunities for it to be used in places that it hadn't otherwise. Have there been any that have been, yeah, I guess surprising uh, for the for the general public? Medicare, other payers have published data that mental and behavioral health has been a, a huge specialty area that has tapped into telehealth, particularly flexibilities that allow audio-only telehealth services. And they're still, they remain one of the highest users, the highest volume specialty, specialty of telehealth services and of audio-only telehealth services. I don't know that that's surprising, but it makes a lot of sense because those services tend to be more um, converse, conversational, counseling focused rather than, you know, eyes on and physical exam focused as other medical specialties may be. So that has given access to mental health services so much more broadly than they ever had been accessible before. And there's some data, some studies showing that patients are more comfortable if they're not on video, um, if they don't have the bandwidth for a video communication, it's more accessible. They may feel more comfortable with a phone call conversation outside of their home or in a private quiet location where others aren't around. And so that's one setting that I think, um, again, I don't know that it's surprising, but I think the, the way that that specialty stands out um, is, is certainly very interesting. Another area that I think is a little bit, I would call it surprising for me, um, is the evolution of telehealth in therapy disciplines, in physical therapy, occupational, and speech therapy services. I think it's particularly interesting when we start to look at some of the studies on how those uh, uh, disciplines have used telehealth successfully to um, accomplish really good outcomes like preventing readmissions to the hospital after joint replacement surgeries. And by being more accessible, patients don't have to come into the therapy clinic multiple times a week, or if they have a long drive to access, you know, quality therapy services, um, it's, it's an interesting discipline where we've seen a, a very significant increase in the use of telehealth. 
We're going to take a quick break so that you can hear about an organization that is doing incredible work in telehealth. But stay tuned because when we come back, we'll hear about Rochelle's role at HTRC and we'll dive into what the end of PHE means for telehealth. You don't want to miss this. Stay tuned. My name is Shelley Lyford, and I'm the CEO of West Health, a family of nonprofit organizations dedicated to helping older adults live independently with dignity and access to high quality, affordable health care. And as part of our mission, we're working to make sure telehealth is optimized for older patients. This is precisely why the West Health Institute joined with the University of Virginia and the Mid-Atlantic Telehealth Resource Center to create the Collaborative for Telehealth and Aging. Together, we've developed principles and guidelines for delivering telehealth to older adults in a safe, effective, and equitable way. And now we've taken our work a step further to launch the Center of Excellence for Telehealth and Aging, which provides actionable resources for telehealth providers. I invite you to visit the Center's new website so together we can assure that older adults are not left behind during this new era of telehealth. It's been incredible to, you know, be in the telehealth space on, on the marketing side and watch the uptick of telebehavioral therapy over the last couple of years, um, having it become really kind of a household term, you know, hearing even peers say, oh, I, yeah, I have a telehealth visit with my therapist or, you know, I'm, I'm going to get on a, a call with my therapist. Like, these are things that I don't I maybe I just didn't notice before the pandemic, but I feel have become far more commonplace um, as we as we look at therapy um, and and our access to therapy. So uh, it's it's very it's very interesting. I want to make sure we touch on your involvement as an HTRC education partner. So this podcast is through the Heartland Telehealth Resource Center. Um, we are HRSA funded and Rochelle is a part of the HTRC team too in her spare time. Um, and she is our um, subject matter expert and she consults with us to just help us disseminate, understand all of these things. Um, and so I have a couple of questions for this specific role. How would you summarize it to our audience, being being an education partner? What does that entail? Sure. Well, the, the primary role or the goal of the uh, education initially was to focus on the coding, billing, and payment piece. And this was happening 2020, height of the PHE, folks are um, really tapping into the resources of HTRC much more frequently. And thankfully, that's what they're there for, saying, okay, we, we want to do these telehealth things. How do we do it in a compliant manner? And then how do we get paid for it? With an eye towards eventually, we want this to be a financially sustainable model and program that we can roll out. And I think it was so smart to have that vision from the outset. So HTRC and the education that I've I've helped with um, has been a lot of webinars and education from starting from the basics. 
what were the telehealth rules before the PHE? And as things changed throughout 2020 and flexibilities came out, new rules and policies were released, we would give timely updates and say, here's the release, here's the flexibility. Now let's walk through exactly what this is, what kinds of claims it applies to, how do you use it? Um, does it apply to physicians, hospitals, critical access hospitals, rural health clinics? Um, but how do you put this together? How do you fill out a claim form? Um, it is fascinating the hundreds and hundreds of pages of instructions that it takes to fill out a one-page claim form for reimbursement. So we hit on some of those, you know, really technical pieces on how you get that claim out the door to get paid for the services that you've provided. And then over time, continuing to provide updates on state policy, commercial payer policy. Now, of course, our focus will be this this reversing of some of the flexibilities, but it's really to be a resource and even provide technical assistance when there are, are specific questions about coding and billing um, to say, here's the resource and here's exactly what the resource says you need to do in that situation you're asking about. Yeah, um, very well put. And kind of going back to the beginning of the interview, I know we talked about PHE and PHE ending, and now comes the time where we talk about what this means for the future of the telehealth industry. What what do you think it means, Rochelle? For telehealth, um, I think it's going to be a long road of continual change, evolution, I should say. I think the policies are going to continue to change and evolve over the course of the next several years. And we know some of the changes that are happening at different points in time this year, and that could probably be the subject of a whole podcast itself. There are certain changes happening Friday. There are certain changes happening in October and the end of the year and the end of next year. In the meantime, State legislators, um, state policymakers across all 50 states are working on policy developments that are evolving telehealth rules and policies and provider licensing requirements. We have federal rules and requirements, lots of bills before Congress that could evolve, make it make telehealth more accessible and more flexible. So the rules of the game for telehealth are going to continue to change. I envision it becoming more flexible, more accessible, rather than reverting back to the more restrictive concept of telehealth that we had three or four years ago before the public health emergency existed. Um, I think we continue to see new models of telehealth being used in new surprising ways that uh, we can see effective care, quality care, and more accessible care in areas that we never really saw prior to the public health emergency. And we've already, we're already seeing that happen, but I'm excited to see even more areas adopting telehealth to see where telehealth policy can go. Me too. I'm excited to see what happens as well. And I completely agree with you that I think it's going to be an evolution because if there's anything that I've noticed in the last three years, it has been nothing but an evolution. And, and, you know, it, we see that in a variety of ways. Like I said, you know, it becoming a household term, telehealth becoming a household term, people being aware of it, people using it, um, you know, just the uptick of um, usage across various populations, um, 
rural, urban, suburbs, all of it, right? And and I'm I'm excited to see, like you said, where it goes. Is there any way that telehealth programs can prepare with this transition? Or maybe a better question is how can they prepare uh, for for the future without the PHE? Yeah, that's been kind of the million dollar question for a lot of providers and this uncertainty on when and if different flexibilities are going to stay or they will go away or they will be modified a little bit. Um, Really, I think the biggest takeaway is to have a picture of what services you provide, what flexibilities those services rely upon. Then you can get a sense of when and if those flexibilities are slated to go away at some point, because some have been made permanent and are going to be here in perpetuity unless something changes in the future. So having sort of a timeline on the rules that you've been relying upon, and at least what we know today, when they're slated to end, helps you focus what you're looking at in terms of policy and rule changes rather than looking at the entire universe of telehealth policy. Um, because let me tell you that it that can be very overwhelming when, especially if you've got multiple states involved and you're following state law and commercial payer policy and Medicare and Medicaid, it's a lot to track. And there are tools out there. Rather than reinventing the wheel, providers can go to HTRC's resources. They can go for this uh, to the Center for Connected Health Policy, which has fantastic resources by states with references. Um, professional associations, the state hospital associations or medical group associations, many of them are putting out tools specific to their practice areas or their constituents. That there are great tools out there to not reinvent the wheel. You just got to find the one that best fits your practice area and stay focused on the services that you're providing or want to provide. That's very sound advice. Um, and I think that our listeners will be delighted to get um, that guidance because I think with any transition, um, there's overwhelm, right? There's um, just kind of that fear of the unknown. And I think it's really important to enlist and recruit uh, subject matter experts to help guide us through that process. And you've been so crucial for HTRC um, over the last couple of years as we've kind of gone through this PHE journey and and we'll continue to be on it even when it's over. So um, (laughs) it doesn't end. (laughs) The beginning of the end or the end of the beginning, um, there's still a long ways to go. So the journey is certainly not over even though the PHE is ending. I wanted to close out this fantastic conversation today by asking, is there anything that I didn't cover that you want to mention or impart um, as we close out this episode. Well, I would say for listeners who are interested in telehealth or are providing telehealth and want to know more, um, telehealth is becoming a very policy-based area where Medicare, CMS, legislators, they want to know what providers and patients are experiencing, what they're thinking. They want to see data and outcomes. So providers wanting to see telehealth continue to um, evolve should get involved with their professional associations, um, be aware of policy changes or proposed policy changes, and provide feedback. Um, We're expecting policy to come out here in a couple of months in July for the Medicare physician fee schedule that always touches on telehealth policy. 
anybody, you don't have to be a healthcare provider or associated with an organization, any member of the public can provide comments and feedback to those rules. So if you don't have time to read the full 2300 pages of the proposed rule, go out and look at highlights that others are putting together and provide comments and feedback to the policymakers because they read those. Um, we know they read them because the Drug Enforcement Administration just paused a rule earlier this week, or I shouldn't say paused, temporarily extended it because they wanted to take the time to read the 38,000 public comments that were submitted. So the agencies are listening to the practitioners and to the public, particularly on the topic of telehealth. I think the advice of you don't have to read, you know, if time is not something you have readily available or bandwidth, there are ways to find information that don't involve reading, like you said, a 300-page document. Like, there are resources out there to break down these concepts, to simplify it, to consolidate it so that you get what you need in order to move forward. You know, another two great resources are the HTRC's website. They put out a lot of good informational resources on their website, educational materials. Um, folks who want to go and learn about those uh, hundreds of pages of rules on how to fill out a claim form, there's a webinar for that, and they're all on the HTRC's website. The Center for Connected Health Policy is another great resource. Um, so use those resources that are out there and um, tap into resources like HTRC that are available to answer your questions if you have them. Yes, please check the HTRC website if you haven't already. Um, Rochelle is right, we are a resource hub. Um, and also stay tuned for, do you, do you have any upcoming webinars now that the PHE is ending? We do. We are planning for some um, in the next couple of weeks. I don't know if the date and time has been announced, but it really a focus on if the PHE is over Friday, as we expect it will be, now what? And we're really going to go a deep dive into a lot of the concepts of what's changing, when it's changing, who those changes apply to. Awesome. Well, thank you again uh, for a fantastic conversation and stay tuned for future updates. Absolutely. This has been Telehealth Unmuted. Be sure to share this episode and subscribe to hear future interviews with leading experts in the field. This podcast was made possible by the Heartland Telehealth Resource Center through grant number U1UTH42530 from the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth, Health Resources and Services Administration and Department of Health and Human Services.